Assalamu alaikum, bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Um, thank you guys for joining us um, for this special session on Sunday. Um, I know people have been, you know, sending us a lot of very kind messages. Thank you for um, being with us. You know that Sheikh has been struggling with a lot of severe pain um, this week in particular, um, and was struggling really hard to um, make it for for this surah. So um, inshallah, it's going to be a very important and a very special surah. Um, you know, I, I just wanted to talk about a little bit um, what it's like, you know, Sheikh has always said that pain is an incredible teacher and that illness is an incredible teacher. And it's one thing um, when you are an individual struggling from pain, um, it's an extremely lonely experience and um, it's, you know, I mean, I, I honestly, I have never myself had to deal with that. Um, so I find that, you know, as much as I try to empathize, oftentimes it's very difficult. And pain and illness is an incredible teacher for people like me um, and people, you know, who have family members who have gone through it. And I think that unless you understand what it's like to live or have someone close to you be in pain or have severe illness, you really don't understand what it's like. And, um, and I just wanted to try and share some of that because, um, you know, growing up, like, alhamdulillah, I never had any health issues. My parents were very healthy. They still are today. They're in their early 80s, alhamdulillah. You know, they have never suffered anything. Um, I think one time my mother um, had a, an, an operation when I was 10. And I remember being very angry with her because I was too young. I felt like, okay, why is this illness taking my, my parent away from me? And I remember to this day, 40 years later, not being very nice to her at that moment because I was just resentful that she was in bed, she had been at the hospital, she was suffering, she couldn't take care of me, and how dare she? Um, but that was my only experience until I married someone who had been ill from the time of birth. And I honestly, you know, I've said before, growing up as a spoiled only child, it was really hard for me to empathize and understand what it meant for someone to be suffering from illness and pain. And so when we first got married, even, you know, hearing the names of the different illnesses that he had had, or, you know, even observing him managing his own medication was something very distant to me. Um, and it really wasn't, um, you know, it was part of the learning process, right? It's learning how to care about someone you care for and empathizing with their situation and their pain. Um, we've been put to the test a lot of times with severe illness um, over the course of our marriage. Um, when Sheikh had cancer um, in, the, in the 2000s, um, that was a very fast um, immersion in what it means to care for someone who's extremely ill. Um, and, you know, I um, reflect on that time and the incredible amount of growth and how difficult it was, honestly, because it was a test where we even had a situation like this where we had an ongoing halakha and we had a number of students. Um, and in his time of vulnerability and time of need, they, they disappeared. Um, and, you know, we, alhamdulillah, had family members, um, the sheikh's mother was with us, um, who helped care for him when literally would spend every single day in bed in excruciating pain. And it was a really difficult test for me because I had never had to, you know, deal with someone who was extremely ill um, and know what it meant to comfort someone who was extremely ill. Because you feel helpless, you feel um, a lot of feelings, like you're irritated, you feel like 
unable to have freedom to do the things you want to do um, on the selfish side, on the side of loving your, you know, your husband who is sick, you, there's nothing you feel that you can do to alleviate the pain. Um, and, and for me, I couldn't really quite even relate to that. Um, and oftentimes, I would observe his mother sitting at his bedside holding his hand for hours on end. Um, and I couldn't do that. I didn't have the discipline. I didn't have the empathy. I didn't have what it was, was in me to do that. And so I would often, you know, distract myself, um, you know, do things that I thought were important at the time, not really taking the time to think, what, what is it like for this person? It's not his fault he's sick and extremely sick and in extreme pain. Um, and someone who can't get up out of bed and can't do things for himself. He doesn't want to be there. I wouldn't want to be there. Um, but oftentimes, you know, like it would be easy for me to leave and just go on with my life. And that's what many people did because pain also teaches you and illness also teaches you who your friends are and who your family members are and people who actually care because, you know, it's a scary experience, especially if you've never dealt with pain and never dealt with illness. It's an inconvenience. It's something that you don't want to have to worry about, think about, take care of. Um, it's someone else's problem. And so it's very easy to run away. Um, and I think, you know, in our tradition as Muslims, you know, there is such a strong component. This is something that I didn't know before I became Muslim, and it was something I had to learn the hard way once I became Muslim, about the whole ethic of caring for people who are ill. And the idea that God is with those people who are ill, and that we, it's our responsibility to take care of people, and especially when it comes to a sheikh. Um, and you know, even thinking in terms of when you, know, you want to care and be kind for someone who's ill because one day you will be ill, and if you take care of someone who's ill, God will send someone when it's your time to come take care of you. Um, and I I've often thought about that, that tradition a lot because you know, I could imagine myself being very ill one day and by myself and alone and not having anyone to take care of me and that was a terrifying thought. Um, and even that was a first step for me to try, try and grow um, and you know, increase my own empathy and my own discipline, even to sit quietly you know, with Sheikh and hold his hand. So that was, you know, very, that was earlier in our marriage. Um, and there was a period of time Sheikh had a heart attack, but there were, you know, he had a lot of ongoing health issues, as I think a lot of people know. And there was a period of time where we would literally go um, to the hospital at least once a year, if not more. Um, where he was hospitalized for different kinds of things. Um, and, you know, I, I learned over time, again, you know, the, the, the skill, honestly, um, and the discipline um, to, to care for someone who is in pain and, and suffering um, and to try and get beyond, you know, my own comfort and my own preferences to actually be there for someone else. Um, and so this is, you know, every time we go through, you know, these sorts of situations and alhamdulillah so now we've been married you know for a couple of decades and i've you know been around it and i and i feel alhamdulillah i've learned so much from the experience of um being married to someone in pain who has been you know in, in constant states of illness over time um, it tenderizes your soul it forces you to learn lessons about yourself um, and confront you know your own ability to care for other people and to be kind and to be patient and to be loving um, and put someone else's needs before yours. You know, this is never a, a, an easy test, but it, it is a test um, for, for the family. It's a test for the community. It's a test for the larger Muslim community because, you know, this is, this is our scholar who is giving us so much. And in the midst of our Halakha project here, 
you know, it, when, when we ha don't have a halakha, when we don't have a chutbah, you know, it's a loss for all of us. And, um, you know, and, and it's a test for all of us. So I, you know, I just invite you to, to join me in, in you know, um, taking an opportunity like this to grow as an individual, you know, as a community. Um, because, you know, it's a very lonely um, thing when, um, when someone you love is sick. It's very lonely for the person who's suffering. There's honestly not very much you can do except pray and, and try to bring comfort. And, um, and I believe it's an opportunity for people to, to earn serious hasanat. You know, if you come to the aid of someone who's ill, especially a scholar, um, it's, it's a huge um, blessing. Um, and, I, and God's paying attention, and, and inshallah, one day, you know, we're, we're all going to get sick, we're all going to get old, you know, we, we'll all have, you know, potential for being in this situation. And I think everyone would not want to face that alone. So it's a chance for us to think about that situation before it happens to us and to try and flex our, you know, ability to, to care for others um, in a very important and powerful way. So um, thank you to everyone who you know has been with us um, in spirit and prayers and sending messages and you know doing whatever you can um, to help us through this very difficult period. Um, and I and I want to testify again as I did in the last um, halakha that you know this this surah there's something about this surah that um, is really important um, that I think <laughs> the darkness really did not want this halakha to take place. Um, and if you had been with us through the last you know, few days and saw what Sheikh has gone through, how he has been fighting and, and how he has been you know, pushing, I mean, it's, it's sort of, um, it's really hard to articulate, but all I can say is he has been fighting with everything in his being to be here at this moment. And, and thank you for being with us and joining us and continue to pray because um, you know, what I think what we're receiving is, is something really divine and, and powerful and beautiful, so much so that um, there were a lot of dark forces trying to prevent it from, from taking place today. So alhamdulillah that we're here, alhamdulillah that Sheikh is, like literally not even an hour ago, he was in bed suffering and I, I couldn't imagine how he was gonna get out of bed and here he is, alhamdulillah, truly from the grace of Allah. So um, thank you so much and inshallah, I'm looking forward to an amazing session, inshallah. It was revealed towards the end of the Mecca period um, most authorities ag agree on that and I think nearly every some some claimed that some ayat in Surah Al-Kaf were revealed in Medina, but that again, there is not much basis for that. So it is most certainly uh, a late Meccan surah. Most most authorities again agree that it was revealed right after Al-Ghashiya, and the surah that was revealed right before Al-Nahl. So between Al-Ghashiya and Al-Nahr. Um, and being late Meccan Surah, that makes it in, in terms of order of revelation number 68 or 69. 
most probably 69 by by most counts I think okay but it is a um, like like the sword like an ahqaf and uh, like a nah itself like surat ibrahim um, surat al-anbiya al-mu'minun which uh, we haven't done i don't we haven't done al-mu'minun right no. um, these were all critical sur because they laid the foundation for the ethical system that um, that is affirmed and that is affirmed and fortified by Islam. Um, you know, ethics are ethics. The, the, the role of any religion is not to bring ethics from an alien space, but to from the system of morality and ethics that is in existence, to organize it and prioritize it and institutionalize it so that it is, so it is effective and has power for human beings. And subhanAllah, Surah Al-Kaf falls precisely in this category. I mean, it is, I, I'm always very uneasy when I say things like, it is a very important surah because I recognize that all of Allah's revelation is very important and all of Allah's words are very important. Um, but there is no question that in some, in, in the same way that there are ayat that teach us that affirm aqidah and they are at the heart and core of everything like Surah Al-Fatiha or Surah Qul Allahu Ahad. Um, they, they, they confirm the essence of aqidah and so they have a a priority and a, a they are foundational ayat foundational ayat that are everything is to be built upon and nothing can be built upon that foundation that is inconsistent with the foundation well so are like surah al-nah and surah ibrahim and surah al-kahf are foundational because, precisely because, they affirm the ethical outlook, the ethical initiative um, that Islam offers the world and that Islam came to affirm and to uh, solidify in the world. Now, of course, Surah Al-Kahf is, is also important in another aspect in that it, it played an enormous role in Islamic culture. And as we will we'll see, it is one of the surah that 
um, there's a lot, a lot of mythology that accumulated over the centuries around Surat al-Kahf. And part of the reason is because it, it, Surat al-Kahf captured the imagination of various, um, various cultural dynamics in Muslim societies and and as and and because a lot of the the, the because of certain if, if, um, relationships between the narratives of Surat al-Kaf and biblical discourses um, where some biblical discourses seeped into the Islamic discourses and then the, the, a lot of mythology was added to it. And as we will see, uh, sort of sifting through and figuring out what, what Surat al-Kaf might have meant upon revelation at the time of revelation, as opposed to all of these mythological accumulations upon Surat al-Kaf, is sometimes a bit of a challenge. But as we'll see, it is a necessary challenge because um, the, the mythology, I believe in the case of Surat al-Kaf, has often um, misdirected or, in fact, um, shortchanged the meaning of Surat al-Kahf itself. Okay. Structurally, Surat al-Kahf is fascinating because it is really the entire surah is structurally four different it's a, it's about four parables or tells you four stories and it moves fairly systematically from one story to another and the stories go from the the the, the um, the, the story of the people in the cave, the, the, the story of the two uh, brothers or friends or, uh, who own uh, farmland, um, the story of the Prophet Musa salam and Khidr um, and this sort of mystical journey and the story of Dhuqarnayn, this leader, again, and whether you talk about the cave or someone like a Khidr or a Zukarnain, there are a lot of mystery to speculate about in each of these stories. And there has been a tendency, as we will see, to um, ignore the relationship between these stories. There has been a tendency to sort of take the stories and build upon them, whether discourses about the end of times and 
um, the emergence of, or the breaking out of Ya'juj and Ma'juj, which inshallah we'll talk about, or the Al-Khidr um, uh, and uh, the, the mystical powers of Al-Khidr and whether Al-Khidr was a prophet or not a prophet, and whether Al-Khidr is alive or not or not alive, whether Al-Khidr sort of is, is in, in some dimension existing uh, until the end of times. And in my view, a lot of these discourses actually distract from the meaning of Surah Al-Kaf, which um, has, and again, as per our methodology, we go back and we ask the question, what was the import of the surah? Why was it revealed at that time? What was it saying to Muslims at the time that it was revealed? And by now we're familiar that the end of the Meccan period is a time of severe persecution. Some Muslims have already migrated to, to Al-Habasha, to Abyssinia. Um, the vast majority are still in Medina. The, there is some preparatory work done to try to find an alternative to the persecution in, in Mecca, uh, but the Hijra to Medina hasn't taken place yet. Uh, but all Muslims are aware that the situation in Mecca is untenable and unworkable and cannot continue, and that there has to be an alternative. Um, And all these surah that, that come towards the end of the Meccan period, each one of them is adding a layer to something that a lot of the Muslims that were living during this period um, only realized in retrospect. So it is after the migration to Medina that they go back and they say, oh, so it, what this surah was talking about makes perfect sense. At the time of Revelation, they, the, the Surah, the, the are speaking to a persecuted people and as we'll see, this will turn out to be quite important to Surah Al-Kaf. Okay. So there is a, a tradition that is very well known about Surah Al-Kaf, which, which you read in all the tafsir, that tells you that the occasion for the revelation of Surah Al-Kaf in total is that in Mecca opposing the Prophet والسلام, and um, all the, the polemics and the propaganda against him, that Mecca sends two representatives, Al-Mudar ibn al-Haris and Uqba uh, ibn um, Abi Ma'it, to Medina to meet with the Jewish tribes of the Medina and to ask them, basically to ask them for a test that only a real prophet would pass. And according to this narrative, that 
uh, the certain Jews in Medina advise um, Ibn Ulr ibn Haris and Uqba ibn, ibn Abi Ma'it that will ask this man Muhammad, ask them about three things um, two of these things are questions about people that lived in the past and one of these questions is about the human soul and according to this to these narratives if the Jews in, in if, if the Jews advise the Meccans only a true prophet would be able to answer these questions and so they go back to the Prophet Muhammad and they say um, okay here are our questions and they allude to the two stories about people in the past and they're alluding to the people of the cave and they're alluding to the story of Dhu Qarnayn uh, in, in a vague reference like tell us about uh, the the people who were persecuted and escaped to and, and escaped to a cave with and God created a, 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 an, an enormous miracle or a great miracle and tell us about the man of the Zuqarnain and and the Prophet according to this tradition responds by saying okay I'll tell you tomorrow counting on the fact that Allah will, get, will he'll receive revelation that tells him the, the right answers. The story goes is that uh, he forgets to say inshallah and because he forgets to say inshallah he doesn't get a response for two three weeks until it becomes very distressing for him and Mecca starts saying see Muhammad's God failed him and upon and then the the and according to this tradition the entire of Surah Al-Kahf is basically a response to these questions to prove that Muhammad is a true prophet and within, as we'll see in this revelation, is a reminder to the Prophet never to do anything without saying inshallah. Now, this type of narrative is an example of a narrative that has been very widely reported. I mean, if you're talking about the isnad of the narrative, it is widely reported. and. Um, cumulatively reported and widely enough reported um, that it is clear that it was a very widely disseminated story in early Islam. But I have to tell you, I have very serious doubts about this entire narrative. Um, and I have very serious doubts from the perspective of uh, an analytical historian. Um, these stories in which the sort of the, the, 
the there it portrays a group group of Jewish sages that uh, you know consult secret annals or secret sources that have a litmus test for the true prophet um, and for Quraysh at the time to consider the tri Jewish tribes in Medina to be the authoritative uh, givers of a litmus test um, and then for the litmus test to be given and then that the Prophet supposedly forgets to say inshallah um, and then the entire Surah Al-Kaf becomes um, as if an, a, an invitation into the Israelite traditions because if the litmus test came from the Jewish tradition then it would stand to reason that if you want to know more I mean after all these Jewish scholars supposedly came up with their litmus test because of the Talmud much more than the Torah. Uh, now, of course, and, and as has happened, Muslim scholars went directly to the Talmud and started borrowing from the Talmud all types of traditions to fill in the gaps about the people in the cave and to fill in the gaps about um, the... Um, and in, in the case of the people who gave us, actually, it wasn't Judaism that played the key role, but Christianity. So they actually went to, to Christian sources, commentaries on the Bible. Uh, but the Dukkaranayin, again, a lot of, and a lot of very fantastical traditions that came from the Israelite tradition or the Christian tradition, um, it just doesn't make a lot of historical sense. It doesn't make a lot of historical sense. And it, as we will see, it, to a very large extent, it empties Surat al-Kaf of its meaning. And what I believe was the, the meaning that was in, understood by the Muslims who received that revelation. Um, At, at that time, by the time that Surah Al-Kaf is revealed, the dynamics between the Qurayshis and Muslims had become dynamics of brutality and dynamics of oppression. Um, to imagine that that type of cooperation that that Quraysh had the type of sophistication to even go to the Jews in Medina, and Jews of Medina especially, uh, which of course only later in retrospect plays a historical significance. So, I, I mean, I couldn't, I, I can't impeach these traditions on the basis of a snad, 
But I must tell you, I have very serious doubts about the legitimacy or the authenticity of these traditions. And there are things in history that become popularized and widely repeated and widely accepted um, that are not necessarily, they, they have a kernel of truth, but that kernel has become covered over by vast accumulations of mythology and fantasy and various cultural uh, dynamics that required layers of narratives be added to that kernel of truth. Um, so anyway, let's, so we'll proceed from there and you know, either at the, at the end of it, you, you agree with my skepticism or this or about the story, uh, an occasion of the occasion of revelation or not. But you know, that's up to you. So Surah Al-Kaf starts out with Alhamdulillah, Interestingly, Surah Al-Isra, which we which we, we've talked about. And in terms of the way the Quran is organized, Surah Al-Isra comes right before Surah Al-Kaf. Um, Surah Al-Isra ends with Alhamdulillah and begins with Subhanallah. Um, and Surah Al-Kaf begins with Alhamd. I mean, it's just a, a, a rather curious fact. I'm not sure that some commentators have saw this as deliberate. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure that that's the case. Um, so, Alhamdulillah, The hand to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that of course it, it is it is yet another affirmation by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that reflect and understand this book and in my view don't resolve what you think are inconsistencies in the book by simply jumping to the doctrine of abrogation. Lam means this is a coherent, systematic book. And if it is a coherent, systematic book, and a book that will prove its reliability for ages to come. It has to be given the intellectual seriousness that it deserves. Um,
قيما لينذر بأسا شديدا من لدنه ويبشر المؤمنين الذين يعملون الصالحات أن لهم أجرا حسنا ماكثين فيه أبدا so this is uh, uh, verse 2 and 3 an upright and of course upright, what does an upright book means well is the very word qiyam morals ethics virtue is the same word it it is a, a book of virtue and morality and it is astounding that that some people can actually go through the Quran and 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 completely miss the point that this is a, a fundamentally a book about ethics and morality it is a repository when you say qayyim and it's a repository of qiyam uprightness I mean, it's it, you know it's not that the quran stands upright but it is that the quran is a repository of the ethical values that human beings must be warned and about and must remember Okay, and notice that al hand here is for the book, but also al hand here is for the principle of accountability. That because, as we said before. The Quran underscores time and time again that without the principle of accountability, life doesn't have meaning. There is no meaning to existence. If existence is not anchored on the principle of justice, then it is really, it becomes like a, a you know, every person for themselves, everything for itself. And the principle of justice needs to be anchored on the principle of accountability. And this is, you know, those who do good will in fact be rewarded the principle of accountability. And وَيُنْذِرَ الَّذِينَ قَالُوا اتَّخَذَ اللَّهُ وَلَدَ مَا لَهُمْ بِهِ مِنْ عِلْمٍ وَلَا لِآبَائِهِمْ قَبْرُ وَالْكَلْمَةً تَخْرُجُ مِنْ أَفْوَاهِمْ إِنْ يَقُولُونَ إِلَّا كَذِبًا إِلَّا كَذِبًا To imagine that Allah in any way is subject to the same logic that rules and governs human existence whether you realize it or not is going to deprecate and 
uh, erode the principle of justice in itself. If God, whether God creates the sun or the sun is co-eternal with God, or but if God fundamentally is subject to the laws that apply to human beings, then God cannot be the giver of absolute justice. In order for God to be the giver of absolute justice, Allah needs to be outside the laws that govern human interaction. And the laws of causality and paternalism and um, uh, the, the whole process of having a, a, someone that in, is an inheritor or someone that suffers for others or someone that is sent to, to pay for the sins of others, all of that is ultimately a deprecation of the principles of justice which is necessary for the principle of accountability. And again, we'll, we'll see how all of this is connected to Surah Al-Kahf. But there's, it's alerting us to another thing that is also going to be very critical for Surah Al-Kahf. And that is, and this is an irony that it is said about Surah Al-Kahf and especially what ends up happening with Surah Al-Kahf. Don't speculate when it comes to the world of the unseen, to the world of ghaib, to the world of the divine. Don't speculate about what you don't know. This is not a world subject to your logic or to your laws. Don't project yourself onto this world. Because as we will see, doing so will lead to all types of corruptions that Surah Al-Kahf itself warns about later. Lying about and here lying is simply when you when you when you have no basis for saying Allah is this or Allah is that. You know when even when people say things like um, Allah loves this or Allah doesn't love that or Allah wants this or Allah doesn't want that. It, Speculation, doing so on the basis of pure speculation is very dangerous because often you're just simply projecting what you are as human beings onto divinity. And that will have the type of pitfalls that Surah Al-Kahf warns about. And again, Surah Al-Kahf addressing the historical moment that the Prophet ﷺ living in, there's no question that the that emotionally that period was very difficult on the Prophet ﷺ. I mean, he's, he, he sees how his own people, the majority, not only rejected him, but 
how his followers are being tormented by those, by his own people, people that he, but there are further difficulties as, as we'll see that actually have a, a very important message to the moral message or a very important role to the moral message of Surah Al-Kahf. But, فَلَعَلَّكَ بَاخِعُنْ نَفْسَكَ عَلَىٰ آثَارِهِمْ Allah knows that the fact that they turn away from this message, Allah knows the fact that they reject, that they refuse to see what is morally upright, what is virtuous for what it is, is absolutely devastating for you. However, as the Quran time and time, time and again reminds Muslims, the Prophet and his followers, that this is the Sunnah that Allah wants. This world is full of zina. Meaning, full na'am of blessings. Full of zukhruf, of ornamentations. And the hardest thing is that this zukhruf, attracts a lot of people and in fact completely absorbs so many people. But this is precisely what Allah has created. This is the test. That all these ornaments, all this all this zuhruf on earth, all this zina on earth was as as while you, while people reject, are rejecting you, rejecting your message, rejecting the, the truth, because they're so absorbed by the zukhruf that surrounds them in this world. But this is precisely the divine will. That ultimately it is boils down to that principle of justice and that principle of accountability. So the fact that they're attracted to this zukhruf and it completely distracts them from anything you have to say, well, there's nothing you can do about it. This is an anchoring principle because it will be modified by the end of Surah Al-Kahf in the ways that we will see. So, while it is telling the Prophet that you personally and your followers don't think that you can do more than you can do. If you, you cannot alter the fate of people and you are not expected to control people or dominate people. You have no dominion over them. But as we will see, Surah Al-Kahf 
actually offers you precisely like a remarkably brilliant map as to how if you want goodness in this world to develop, how it could do so. So it is like saying, and I'm, I'm skipping ahead and just hold, you know, just, you know, skipping ahead, but just hold that thought until we come back to it. That there are, there is a way to promote goodness in the world. But that, the ways to promote goodness will never take the choice away or should never take the choice away that is at the core and at the heart of the principle of accountability. And right after this very short introduction, and it is relatively in, in, in Quranic terms, it gets right to the point of the first uh, narrative of the people of the cave. Um, of course, in traditional sources, they, they say, well, this is precisely because Surat al-Kaf is supposed to answer this, these trick questions that the Jewish uh, scholars gave the Meccans. But I, I don't think so at all. I think it actually it, it gets to the point right away because of the function and the purpose of Surat al-Kaf, as we will see. Um, I, um, let's take a, a, a two-minute restroom break. Um, I, as um, Grace, bless her heart, told told you guys, I'm, I'm not feeling uh, uh, that well. So, you know, if I I I don't know how I sound you well because I can't hear for one thing <laughs> I can't hear myself but um, if I'm not that coherent and if I'm taking more breaks than usual forgive me um, the first story the people of the cave and of course, you know, there is so much writing about who the people of the cave were and whether they were at the time of Jesus, before Jesus. Most sources said they were Christian. Um, some said that they were Jewish. But I think it is not material, it's not important. The, the Quran wanted to tell us who precisely these people were, it would have. Uh, the name of the so-called, the, the name of the emperor at the time, or the, the it is, it, that misses the point. The story of the people of the cave is simple enough and straightforward enough 
is that they are a group of young people, young men, that are confronted with a corrupt society, a society that rejects their system of belief. And they decide that they're unable to change their society. And the text of the Quran itself indicates that their fear of persecution because of their belief uh, is real. That they, they say, if our people find us about us, find out about us, that they might stone us to death. So they fear persecution and they decide to withdraw to the cave to, to live in seclusion as an exception to the way of life that their society at large is pursuing that is corrupt. And there are many fascinating things here in that precisely the Quran says it's clear that the story of the people of the cave was a known narrative at the time of the Prophet that it was circulating in Christian circles, maybe in Jewish circles, that maybe even in non-Christian and non-Jewish circles, uh, but that it was full of, there was a lot of speculation about who these people were, a lot of speculation about where, what part of the world, a lot of speculation about um, their number, etc., etc. And on the one hand, the Quran comes and says, well, I will tell you, I will tell you the facts about the people of the cave. But on the other hand, it doesn't tell us it doesn't name any part of the world. It doesn't say, like, people of the Pharaoh, for instance, or Thamud, or Ad, or the, the, it doesn't specify any group of people or any period in time. And furthermore, as we will see, it tells us not to speculate upon the details and the specifics of the story. And although it tells us that, in the Islamic tradition, you'll find that the commentaries, the, the tafsir books, are full of speculation about who they were and when they were and so on. But the essence of the story is that they retreat to this cave. And as they retreat to this cave, a miracle takes place that Allah puts them to sleep or in some frozen status for centuries, for three centuries, 
And they are not aware that, in fact, they've entered into this suspended state. And when they wake up, they think that they're still living in the historical period in which they are living. And as we know, their, their dog is guarding the cave, and the, the dog itself goes into the same status. And when they come to, they have a brief discussion about how long were we asleep for. And some of them say, well, we, we've been asleep just for a short while. They, they notice that the sun is coming down. They say, well, we've been asleep for half a day. Um, others say, no, we've been asleep, asleep for longer, for a bit shorter. And ultimately, they tire of this discussion and say, well, Allah knows how long we've been asleep. And they move on. And they send someone to the market with money, with some money to buy food. Now, the money that they, they have is minted according to the historical period in which they lived. So, of course, when, and it's now dated by centuries, so it's considered, you know, uh, um, an artifact, you know, money that's several centuries old. But the, the person who goes to the market is not aware, of course, that this is old money because he's not aware that all, the, all this time passed. And when he goes to the market, there's, from a hadith, we, we, the, the story is told in, in, the, in, in, a, in one of the hadith, many hadith about the people of the cave, that the uh, people in the market say, where did you get this coin? This is a very old coin. And they suspect that these people must have found a treasure. The matter ends up going to the ruler at the time who is not, who by this time is, is a ruler that's not persecuting believers. And they go back to the cave and when they go back to the cave, the people who re return to the cave, in other words, the, 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 the matter goes from the marketplace to the authorities. The authorities go to the cave, and upon reaching the cave, these youth and their dog die. And then in, a discussion takes place among the authorities at the time as to what to do with this location. So that's the skeletal structure of the story. People withdraw from society, they seclude themselves, they, the miracle is that they die for three cent, or they, they're asleep for three centuries, that Allah preserves their bodies from deteriorating. There are some narratives that say they, they died and then were resurrected, but these are minority narratives that we don't need to count on. But the, 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 the miracle is that 
in fact, even the elements is that they are, as the Quran mentions, that they are that they move. Allah makes their bodies turn over a number of times so that things like, um, you know, if the body stays constant for a long time in one position, um, it's damaged and it deteriorates. So even that is taken care of. And after 300 years, they wake up. And that's the miracle presented to the people at the time. But what is the, the, now in the mystical, in the Sufi-esque tradition, the story of the people of the cave and their withdrawal gains a lot of important symbolic significance. That their withdrawal of the cave is like it was withdrawal into the inner self and this long period of slumber is the period of heedlessness in which human beings live through and their waking up is as if the, the type of in the enlightenment that comes to human beings after they withdraw from all uh, temptations, all the zuhruf of life. But there is, there is another aspect to Surah Al-Kaf that um, deserves real attention. And again, it goes back to the time that Surah Al-Kaf is, is revealed. Those are persecuted people and the solution that they come to is to withdraw from society. They are unable to confront society with their beliefs and persist. For Muslims who are living at the time, the very natural thing, if you are, be, if you are living at the time of the Prophet and you are told about a story of a persecuted group of youth that was draw in a cave. And what is the, na the natural reaction? It, the natural reaction is, going to, is that you're going to think to yourself, well, is that what should I do? What should, should I withdraw from society? Why were the youth of the, 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 the youth of the cave, why did they withdraw from society rather than confront society with their ideas and persevere and struggle and suffer the consequences? Well, sometimes if beliefs are in the period of gestation and they are not powerful enough to interact in social dynamics, sometimes the survival of these ideas is not seen at all 
in the immediate time period in which these ideas exist, but in fact are resurrected, they come to life centuries later. So, you can look at it as stages in the development of a dawah. The first stage that we will reflect upon in the development of a dawah is that gestation stage where you have a society that's corrupt, a set of ideas that are pure and correct, but the bearers of the pure, and, uh, pure ideas are not necessarily powerful enough to confront that society that is corrupt and for the ideas to take hold. The priority at this stage is to preserve the ideas, is for the ideas to survive because the ideas, by, by the preservation of the ideas, the ideas in fact might take hold as according to the story of the cave, when these, kid, when these youth wake up 300 years later, they discover that what they held, what they believed in as, as, as an extreme minority in their time, 300 years later became the common belief of, and they are surprised to find that, well, what they used to believe in that was so unusual has now become the accepted belief system in their society. And in fact, the Quran points to this. This is 21. means we led society to discover them. That this is 21. That we we've like we've exposed their story so that society will come to know about them and after society finds out about them so society at this point recognizes the value of these youth and have a debate whether they should build a memorial or build a mosque. Because these youth now died, right? And 300 years ago, their bodies would have probably been crucified and then left, burned and left to the dogs. But now, they're actually being honored. And there is a debate, well, do we build a memorial or do we build a mosque? And the people who prevail are the people who say, let's build a mosque. So society now understands the value of these youth. But it took 300 years, and the Quran quite accurately says 300 years plus nine. Because according to Hijri, 
in, according to AD, it's 300 years, or according to Christian era, it's 300 years. According to Qamari era, to Hijri era, it's 309 years. So, this is, well, I mean, and in verse 22, <laughs> this is when the Quran said, well, you know, they'll say there were three and then the fourth was a dog, they were four, but the fifth was a dog. And while the Quran indicates that in fact they were seven and their eighth was a dog, it says quite explicitly, don't argue about this. فَلَا تُمَارِ فِيهِمْ إِلَّا مَرَاءً ظَاهِرًا وَلَا تَسْتَفْتِ فِيهِمْ مِنْهُمْ This is not something that you should debate. And don't even go around arguing about their numbers. So it's like the Quran telling you that the details, the, 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 the micro details is not the point here. The point is to understand that this is, this quite frequently is the first stage in the life of an idea. And sometimes the idea will, all that you will do in your time period with the idea is to simply preserve it. Because the life of the idea is 300 years from now, 500 years from now, 1,000 years from now, that's none of your business. But your role is to preserve the idea. Now, it is entirely irrelevant, in my view, whether the people of the cave are a historical story or not, whether it's a metaphor or not. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it is. I, I'm very willing to believe that Allah put people to sleep for 300 years and then woke them up. But, but that's not the point. The point is to understand why the story is there. The point is not to speculate. It is for people that you know want to benefit from tourism as a business that want to speculate about, oh, here's where the, the people of the cave, this is their cave, and so on. But for theologians and for philosophers and for moralists, where precisely their cave or where the Jews or Christians is, is completely beside the point. The point is to understand why this story is in Surah Al-Kahf, and it is the first story told by Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala for us to reflect on. Now, so after that, after that, it comes and says, وَلَا تَقُولَنَّ لِشَيْءٍ إِنِّي فَاعِلٌ ذَلِكَ غَدًا إِلَّا أَنْ يَشَاءَ اللَّهِ وَاذْكُرْ رَبَّكَ إِذْ نَسِيتُ وَقُلْ عَسَى أَنْ يَهْدِينِي رَبِّي لِأَقْرَبَ مِنْ هَذَا رَشَدًا So, 
after telling you, starting the story of Surah Al-Kahf, and after telling you that they, they, they don't worry about the details of, of, then it comes and says, don't say that you're going to do anything except if Allah wills. And always remember your Lord if you forget. And if you forget, your prayer should always be, May Allah guide me to a better way or to, to a better piety than this. Now, personally, I find it difficult to believe that the Prophet that the Prophet would forget the, the Prophet would forget Allah it, 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 we, this is so inconsistent with what we know about the Prophet I mean the, 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 the man his, as I said before his seerah, his real seerah is his dhikr the man is in constant dhikr Really, to the Prophet, may Allah guide me to, to, to Rashad, to wisdom or to a path better than this? It, it, it's not, you know, it, it, it cannot be said to the Prophet. I mean, I just, my, my, there's, my entire being has a very hard time. And note that only after this, then it tells you, that how long they stayed in their cave. One, I mean, if in fact the point is to tell the Prophet that you know you forgot to say inshallah, and that's why I didn't tell you what the story is for 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 three weeks, why would it start the story of the cave and only when we get well into the story in verse 22 then it would say there's just a lot of of things that don't make sense other than what i've mentioned at the beginning of the halakha so but if you understand that surah the, the story of the cave is about the anatomy of a dawah of, 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 of a cause, of a message. Then it is, then you would understand that it is laying the foundation for the basics and the premises of, it's like saying, listen, Understand that time itself, you think that you've been living in a time that, uh, that your message is being ignored for very long. Or you think that your message has not succeeded for very long. Or you think that the Romans have been superior and controlling this universe for too long. Or you think that this empire is dominant for so long. But you know what? That's your perception of time. 
time itself belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When it comes to these ultimate questions that have nothing to do with how much effort you've put in, that's up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And understand that when you sit there and say, why Allah? Why is, is, is my message not taking hold? That's فَسْكُرْ رَبَّكَ إِذْنَسِيْتْ So I mean, I'll give you a very practical example. Um, yesterday, we tried to <laughs> distract me from illness. So we found out about, um, about an organization that tracks imams that have committed horrible things. I mean, the, the, the sexual offenses. And, and, and so we're looking at these imams, and of course they all have very nice beards, and they, they look like, you know. But a lot of these imams that, you know, are sexual, have, have been, even some of them have been even convicted, have been indicted, in, in criminal court, convicted, and some of even them have been sentenced to prison. And their Facebook and their electronic media, despite being sexual offenders and all of that and serving prison sentences, have 40,000 followers, 50,000 followers. Uh, compare that to your story, truly. <laughs> you know, compare that to, you know, but if we're lucky, we'll get to, I don't know, thanks to Ramin, he's our social media guru, I think we've got to 3,000 or something like that. 4,000. 4,000? 4, okay, yeah. You know, how <laughs> You know, it's not, it's not, it's, this is, it's not your business to say, to say why. Why is this, you know, it, it is, that's the nature of, of the way Dawa works. You preserve the message. Anyway, I, I, I just, I, the, the fact that we were looking at that at the time that I was thinking of Surah Al-Kaf just blew my mind. It's like I, I took it as a personal message from from Allah to to behave and to uh, uh, know my 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 place. Uh, you know, not to ask questions that I should ask. So, time and the. And, and we'll see this, by the way, in, in, again, because it will come back and be, that theme will be developed in Surah Al-Kahf. The idea of the dynamics of history in time and when a message takes hold and when a message doesn't take hold, what systems of belief prevail and what systems of belief deteriorate that 
you can only contribute your human efforts as they are. But sometimes, and I underscore this because it is very important that sometimes the, the best solution for an idea is preservation, is survival through preservation. This is like when you are, you know, at a time when no one is reading, so what you do is you preserve texts. The reason that you need to preserve texts is that when there is a period where everyone is reading, there will be a lot of people preserving texts. You don't need, you don't need to worry about it. But when no one is reading, then you have to step up and preserve texts. So when the mood changes, when the social dynamics change, and people come to their senses and they, 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 they value the word again, they'll find these texts preserved. Because if you don't preserve them, it's the, the option is gone. It disappears. Notice in 26, Allah alamu bima labithu. Allah knows how long they, they were in their cave. Right. That's clear enough. Okay. Lahu ghaybu samawati wal To Allah is all the ghayb. Ghayb, as we said, is the unknown, unseen. But that expression, absir bihi wasma. The study Quran translates it as how well he sees, how well he hears. That's not quite it. Absar bihi wasma. It is like, see, it's, it's a remarkable expression. I mean, again, one of the, the, the miracles of eloquence in the Quran. It's like saying, understand that it, it, it's like the, the, the Quran is, is raising these Muslims, literally raising us as Muslims. So understand that if you want to rise with the message of Islam in the same way that Allah told you to avoid the pedantic, not to sit there and to argue about some pedantic facts like, which was a preoccupation of so many scholars, till now. You know, scholars will sit there and, and argue endlessly about something that doesn't matter to anyone. But if you have a message, knowledge is not for its own sake. Knowledge is for its moral contribution. If it doesn't have a moral contribution, then it's useless. There's just data. And the point is never data. But here, then it tells you, learn that it is sufficient to hear with Allah's ears and to see with Allah's eyes. It is like, you have to have the type of confidence in Iman that as if these are absolute perceptions. It's a remarkable expression. 
absr bihi wasma. It's 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 beautifully it's wonderfully beautiful. وَأَدْلُ مَا أُوحِيَ إلَيْكَ مِنْ كِتَابِ رَبِّكَ لَا مُبَدِّلَ لِكَلِمَاتِهِ وَلَنْ تَجِدْ مِنْ دُونِهِ مُلْتَحَدًا Recite what has been revealed unto you from the, the, the book of your Lord. There no no one alters the words of your Lord. وَلَنْ تَجِدَ لَا وَلَنْ تَجِدَ مِنْ دُونِهِ مُلْتَحَدًا You, it's like a multahad is something that you escape to or run to or or hide in. Um, but again, it's one of these wonderfully eloquent expressions that is like your value system has to be anchored in this book, this book of this Qayyim book, this book of Qiyam, this book of morality and virtue. Because there is no other source of reliable help other than this book. Okay. But it has another significance here. Now notice. وَاصْبِرْ نَفْسَكَ مَعَ الَّذِينَ يَدْعُونَ رَبَّهُمْ بِالْغَدَاوَةِ وَالْعَشِيِّ يُرِيدُونَ وَجْهَهُ وَلَا تَعْضُ عَيْنَاكَ عَنْهُمْ تِرِيدُ زِينَةَ الْحَيَاةَ الدُّنْيَا وَلَا تُطِعْ مَنْ أَغْفَلْنَ قَلْبَهُ عَنْ ذِكْرِنَا وَاتَّبَعَ so here, this is uh, 28. So here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is addressing the Prophet. But as we said, that unless there is cause to make what Allah says to the Prophet, exclusively apply to the Prophet, then when Allah speaks to the Prophet, Allah also is speaking to us. The command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Allah says, persevere. Persevere in associating yourself with those who are committed to our remembrance. In other words, committed to a path of divinity. And don't, under any circumstance, allow yourself to be tempted to looking at the zina, meaning the zukhruf of the world. Now, the occasion for this revelation is fairly well famous. In that Quraysh comes to the Prophet and says, okay, listen, we, are, we want to talk to you to try to come to some resolution. The problem we have with you is that you are always surrounded 
by these poor people like Bilal, like Ibn Mas'ud, slaves and former slaves and people from tribes that are not prestigious and people who are poor and give us a time to meet with you without this riffraff. And everyone agrees that these verses come to tell the Prophet under no circumstance agree to these terms. But there is something, it, it, it is easy to just say, well, you know, it, it, to forget the, 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 or to ignore the ethical, moral lesson here. One of the narratives is that some of these people, that one of the complaints, for instance, that we, we, we read is Meccans saying that it is highly, when leaders meet, so this is sort of trying to appeal to the ego of the prophet. Oh, see, now you're, now you're, you're prestigious, you're like us. When leaders meet, it is not appropriate for the riffraff to be around. So this is one. The other, there are narratives that Meccans come to the Prophet and say, you know, the problem is some of these poor people, they smell bad. And we would like to meet with you, but we're perfumed people. We wear perfume and we're clean. So we don't want them around. But there are later narratives that Muslim theologians took these verses in Surah Al-Kahf to apply to, to the extent that some claimed that these verses were revealed in Medina. I don't believe they were. But I believe that a lot of Muslim theologians thought that these verses apply to the circumstances I'm going to tell you about in Surah in Medina that they imagined that, that these verses were in fact revealed in Medina. And what happened in Medina is that, as we know that there were a group, a substantial group of people who were poor, so poor that they were homeless and they converted to Islam, and they would live in residences given to them by the Prophet around the Masjid of the Prophet. But these were, effectively, they would live, they would sleep in these residences, but live surrounding the Prophet all the time, and, and eating in the mosque, meeting in the mosque, praying in the mosque, socializing in the mosque. And among the things at that time, of course, among the most expensive and valuable things are textiles. Textiles said a lot about who you are as a human being. And this group of uh, indigent 
companions of the Prophet would wear cheap fabric and that cheap fabric was often uncomfortable especially in Arabia because it's hot uh, it, is, it was often made had a substantial amount of wool in the, in the fabric so so much so that they became known as Ahlul Sufa the 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 the, uh, the wool wearers, so to speak, people who wear wool. But when the in the desert it gets to 130 degrees, 140 degrees, and you're wearing wool, you're going to sweat a lot. And so in Medina. Some started saying, well, the people of Ahl Sufa, these poor people who are wearing this clothes, they sweat so much that they stink. And we, want, we don't want them around because they don't smell good. And the Prophet ﷺ recited these same verses to educate the community that these are not appropriate grounds for complaint. Their poverty is a collective, communal problem. You can't complain about what they wear and about their sweat when as a community, we have, create, we have not created the solution for the sweating. So as I said, some Muslim authorities imagined that these verses were in fact revealed on that occasion, but it, it was revealed much earlier. And as I said, it was, it, it was clear that the ethic, after telling you that time belongs to Allah, now, bear with me. So first here, it's, it, it, look how it's building on its elements. History belongs to Allah. Time belongs to Allah. But even when you look at social status, understand you are not free to sit and create etiquette for human intercourse you are not free to to define what is appropriate without the virtues and ethics that Allah affirms and approves of and so what does it tell the Prophet about the these these humble people that surround him it says no in fact you should persevere in associating yourself with these modest human beings and don't kid yourself if you agree to disassociate yourself from these modest human beings even if it is just to meet with the Meccans. You are looking at the Zina Hatid Dunya. You are looking at the Zukhruf of this world. 
You are looking at things like prestige, you are looking at things like appearances, you are looking at things like, you know, the, the, the type of values. Lo and behold, the same types of value system that made the youth of the cave run to the cave. But look at where it is this is mentioned. What Right before it tell, it tells the Prophet to reject that value system, it says stick to reciting the Quran. So in my view, after the revelation of the Quran, when you want to withdraw to a cave, your cave is the Quran. When the world presents these overwhelming circumstances that challenge your morality, the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is clear. You know, you, you, can, you can get depressed, yes. You can sit and mope, yes. You can sit and say, why, what, whatever. But you want the Islamic solution. The Islamic solution is to stick to the Quran. Your cave is the Quran. There is no refuge other than that. There is no cave other than that. That's your cave. And ultimately, this is again the power of the language. Uh, those people understand that those people that look to prestige and status and, you know, drive the Mercedes band. Uh, sorry. Not, I'm thinking of political leaders and their expensive Mercedes-Benz fleets and all of that. No, 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 no. I, I love Mercedes-Benz. Uh, we have someone here, here who drives a Mercedes-Benz and I didn't mean to... I didn't mean to say anything negative about that. I actually like Mercedes, but I'm, I'm thinking of the, the black Mercedes-Benz, the expensive Mercedes-Benz that so many of our political leaders drive, you know the type that, you, just turn on the TV, see any, any Muslim in an official visit, you know, you find this, they don't even manufacture the freaking car. I mean, it's just utter, anyway, uh, this type of, 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 Imagine if we had a single Muslim country. I mean, it is in an irony that, that we live in a world which in non-Muslim countries, it is more common to see a, a ruler actually just talk to, to, to average people, to laity. While in Muslim countries, all the ostentatious displays of power has become the rule. 
it's amazing. I mean, it's just amazing that our Quran is, is, is warned us about everything that we ended up doing as, as, as a people. Did you tell people why we changed location? Uh, I don't know if you guys noticed, I'm not sitting surrounded by books anymore because it's required that I go upstairs to go to that room. And I couldn't uh, do the stairs. So we, we had to do it downstairs. So I don't have books around me. So the next story in Surah Al-Kahf seems it's straightforward enough in a sense that it involves two people. This is which starts just so you can follow along at 32, that the two people, both of them are property owners, and, but they're of unequal wealth. One of them is very wealthy, the other, we don't know the amount, the extent of his wealth, uh, but, the person who's very wealthy, as often happens to people with, with uh, means that Allah blesses with a lot of material, they, they start imagining that this wealth is independent of Allah's will, will and that it is theirs, and that they're entitled to it. And there is a form of discussion, conversation that takes place between these two and ultimately the person who is ungrateful towards Allah loses his wealth and is inconsolable and full of regret because of that. But of course this is the, the general contours of the story, the, the, the broad skeletal, and, and we, we should then ask, well, why is this narrative in Surah Al-Kahf right after the narrative about the cave people and right after the narrative about the, the, the importance of um, not succumbing to values of the values and morality of that we in the modern age call the morality or ethics of classism that the the ethics which says that there is a class that is below and a class that is above and the class that is above is entitled to privileges and merits that should be denied to the class that is below. And it is clear that Islamically, that type of logic, and in my view, even the idea of exclusive clubs or exclusive um, whatever to wealthy people is un-Islamic. It, it, it is just, 
inconsistent with Islamic morality. That doesn't mean that the, the, the government has an absolute power to, to ban it. That's a separate question, question of jurisdiction and who has the authority to do what under law. But as a moral issue, whether it's moral or immoral, answer is it's immoral. If, in my view, if you're a good Muslim, you would not seek to belong to clubs, exclusive clubs and exclusive establishments that discriminate against the poor and exclude the poor. So this narrative comes right after the, the narrative about the, the, the two people that are talking about wealth comes right after. And of course, the books of tradition, you know, they, they become concerned with who were these two people. And then you read, uh, the, taken from the Ezra-like traditions, that the rich person, um, the ungrateful rich person was called Bracus, and the uh, good man was called Yehuda or Judas. And that, um, and that the, and then you know the the the, the, the traditional books go on to copy from the, a lot of the Talmudic tradition, all types of mythology that is not reliable. But what is significant here are several things that that are worth just flagging. We should pay. So, notice in 33, كِلْتَ الْجَنَّتَيْنِ آتَتْ أُكُلَهَا وَلَمْ تَظْلِمْ مِنْهُ شَيْئًا وَفَجَّرْنَا خِلَالَهُ مَا نَهْرًا This quite remarkable expression that could uh, that unfortunately doesn't get a lot of attention. Let's see, 32. Uh, uh, Both gardens brought forth their produce and failed not in the least, and we made the stream gush forth in their midst. What I'm, point, what I'm uh, referring to here is what has been translated as failed not in the least, وَلَمْ تَظْلِمْ مِنْهُ شَيْئًا That expression deserves reflection. Literally, it means the earth was لَمْ تَظْلِمْ was not unjust to the rich party. It's like saying the earth was just to the rich party. Here is a, one of these remarkable Quranic um, um, uh, insights that just, and that is, it's like Allah created everything in, 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 in our lived world according to, to, to clear laws. 
And these clear laws, it's what we exploit to enjoy the blessings of Allah. So the clear laws, among those clear laws, is Allah created a land that has certain rules for it to have fertile soil, and this land is irrigated by water in a certain way, and a system of pollination or a system of seeding in a certain way, and if you treat this land justly, it treats you justly. So what does it mean to treat the land unjustly? This is something that deserves a serious pause. Because Allah is alerting us that when we, for instance, what came to mind, and this has been for years now, that this is, is when we play around with genetics, you know, there were famous lawsuits where companies that would um, refuse to label genetically altered uh, poultry and genetically altered produce, agricultural produce. Why? Because there was a lot of evidence of causal connections between genetically altered food and diseases like uh, Alzheimer's and cancer and other diseases. And it became a huge, and unfortunately still, it's still a big problem because it's still very difficult to get accurate information on what's been genetically altered. But if you look at it from the perspective of lam tazlim minhu shay'an, when we play around with nature and treat nature unjustly, and it treats us unjustly in return, I think Islamically that's very problematic. Now, here, although the earth has been just to him, so it, it, it's a brilliant way of saying, look, he used the laws that Allah created and obtained the benefit of these laws. But what did he do in, 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 in return? Now, when he actually dwelled in this Jannah, in this garden, in, this, in, in, the, in the property that he owns, he did so, although the heirs had been just to him, he was unjust to himself. It is like if you forget that you are simply using the causal laws, including when you use your brain. When someone, like there's a show that is painful for me to watch because as a lawyer, I've, I've seen a lot of, there's a call called Dirty John. 
Um, and watching that show is very painful because as a lawyer, I, I know tons of people who are exactly what this show is talking about. Tons of people, the Dirty John type story. Uh, you know, you, you're in a law firm, you, you're, you're very successful, you make a lot of money. Uh, as soon as you make a lot of money, you forget all the, the type of ethics that, that you used to have when you were an undergraduate, when you were a law student, when you were looking for a law job, when you were a small associate in a law firm, when you're hoping to make a partner in the law firm. And, and I've just seen so many. And before you know it, you're, you're having an affair and, and you're, you're just a lousy human being and, and so many fronts. Um, the, the fact that you used your intellect, using your intellect, to be able to apply yourself to your studies and get good grades, and then the good grades result in a, your writing ability, your analytical ability. You are using the laws that Allah set in nature. They are treating you justly, but are you treating yourself and others justly? It's a paradigm shift if you think of things that way. Then, then the Dirty John type phenomena that, or that show, uh, you know, the, for a long time I thought the show was called Dear John, but it turns out it's called Dirty John. Um, it, it will be a very different way of seeing it, right? Okay. And so he is unjust to himself because he thinks he's entitled. And he says, well, not only... I am so gifted, I am so brilliant. Look, I get results. I become wealthy. Uh, I used to know an, an Egyptian guy um, who a long time ago um, was, was, a, was a poor worker. I mean, he, he just worked in a rug store and he used to borrow money from my father. And then he started he, he became a very, 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 very rich man uh, 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 owning rug factories all over the world. Um, and subhanAllah, I mean, the, when you look at the, 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 the well, sometimes when he, he, he's not alive anymore, but when he was alive, I would often just like think of the person that I used to know before he became this big, and you, you couldn't imagine. I mean, it's just a completely different human being. Now that he was, as a rich human being, he was sort of a god. Everyone treated him like a god. He, he spoke like a god. You know, whatever he wants is... And then, of course, you know, like, when it came time, he just died like the rest of us. Okay, so this man then, he thinks he's so entitled that he even thinks, as a lot of rich people do, well, you know, if in fact it turns out, and a lot of powerful and rich people think that way, by the way, if it turns out that there is a God, and there is accountability, 
I'm sure that God will forgive me and that I will enjoy the bounties in the hereafter. Why? Because often wealthy people like that or powerful people like that, they imagine that they, they exaggerate in their psyche whatever good they do and minimize in their psyche whatever evil they do. Well, you know, I employ so many people. I, I have, I open, there's so many homes that are dependent on my factory and dependent on my, on my farms. You know, without me, all these people would not have a living. So I am sure I'm fine because, you know, I'm sure this is worth a lot in the hereafter. And so if it turns out there is a God, I'm just going to say, listen, God, you know, I've, I've employed 30,000 people and put food on their table. And this must be, that's the way they think. That's really, and, and that is a lot of the way that power thinks, is that it takes so much for granted. Okay, anyway. And as we know, the person who is interlocutor and again, I don't think it's material at all who these two people were and whether in fact they were Brakus and Yehuda or, or, or you know, other people, whether they were in Palestine or they were in Sham or they were in Yemen or they were, you know, it really doesn't matter. And he says, you know, if, you are, you're suffering from a deep moral flaw that you don't realize that this world has an owner and that no amount of wealth, no amount of privilege will entitle you to the type of exceptionalism that the earlier verses refer to, the type of exceptionalism that those in Medina who wanted the stinky poor people out of their way, or those in Mecca who wanted the ugly poor people not to be around if they talked to the Prophet, that type of exceptionalism, that's why th this narrative comes right after that. And the type of immorality that drove the good youth into the cave. See how it all connects? It's not just like separate stories. That's not the way you should read Surah Al-Kaf. So, in fact, what he is warned about happens, and that is he loses his wealth and he tastes regret. But what is the point about the story other than the obvious? That you know, you should be grateful to Allah and not wait until you lose everything to remember Allah. That's the obvious point. But there is another thing that you notice here that is fascinating. The people of the cave withdrew to the cave. They didn't debate with their, their society. This man debates his moral position with the privileged and the wealthy. And he 
gives and takes. I mean, he is making a point and responding to a point and saying, well, no, you're wrong here. What's interesting is that the rich person doesn't seem to threaten his interlocutor. So, in my view, in my eyes, we see the second model of Tao. The first model is the model of withdrawal and seclusion to preserve the idea and protect the idea. The second model, if you are able to, you are engaging and debating. Perhaps Allah, on Allah's time, not your time, will prove the validity of your points. It's like, you know, if I'm warning someone today and saying, you know, people, don't, don't be taken by all the wealth and the power of, um, which is happening, the real events of our day. The wealth and power of the U.S. and Israel in the way, the, the injustice that they inflict on Palestinians. And the, the, don't be taken by, to, to, by all that zukhruf to forget Jerusalem, etc., etc. It might be that the way Allah yields history will prove my point that it is wrong to, to surrender your ethical position just because the U.S. is dominant and Israel is, the U.S. is dominant in the world and Israel is dominant in the Middle East. The, the, there's no question. Israel is the superpower of the Middle East. No one can defy that superpower because of another superpower. But it is on Allah's time, not my time. And that's the moral point, that, that's the moral error that a lot of people commit. Is that, well, you know, we didn't see Allah's punishment come down. We, we didn't see how the unjust are. Well, then focus on your own injustice. Focus on cleaning and purifying yourself. Maybe it's time for you to withdraw to the cave the Qur'anic cave. Maybe it's not time for you to be engaging in pointless debates because you don't have the power base to make these points. But rushing Allah's time is, tra is, is, trans is transgressing upon Allah's boundaries. Okay. Um, the other thing I, I, that is worth pointing here is that a lot of the a lot of the uh, Sufi ask the Fasir when they talk about the narrative of these two men and and talk about the man who entered his Jannah zalimun li unjust to himself. They'll often mention something that I, I like. They'll talk about. They'll say that the nafs. There's a nafs shahwaniya, a um, 
there's enough shahwaniya and enough futriya and the the uh, the nafs futriya is what the intuitive self that always has an element of rada rada means it always has an element of refrain it it first when you are a baby respond its refrain is based on what will bring you physical harm but as you grow up it is it tells you to different degrees depending on how you were socialized um, and depending on your acculturation it will tell you when you covet something what the other side of that coveting is so if you you know you're walking and you see something that belongs to someone else and you want it the nafs of futriya comes and says but wait it's not yours the nafs shahwaniya the coveting self is what tells you you want it you know that's what matters and the sufi asked in the sufi asked tradition they 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 have some beautiful discourses on the relationship between nafs al-shahwaniya, the coveting self, the self that always ultimately says whether it's food, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's a prestige, whatever it is, that, well, you, you, you want it and it will bring you happiness, it will satisfy you in some degree and th its relationship was al-nafs al-radi'ah which is al-nafs al-futriya the, the, the other nafs the nafs that always reminds you of the other side of the equation and and counsels restraint and they often say that irtaqa the elev the sufi discourse on elevating um, often with all the complexity boils down to how you discipline these two sides of the nafs that the more you cleanse the nafs from its its shahwa its coveting side um, and the more you strengthen a nafs al-radi'ah, the, the nafs that can all to the point, when you get to the point where you can think of others before yourself, then you're ready for utqaq, then you're ready for elevation. But it's, it's fascinating to me that they always say that you're not really ready for utqaq as long as in your mind, in your heart, you come before others. Um, just a, 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 you know. The other thing I, I'll, I'll point to is look at 46. Al-Malu al-Banuna zinatu al-Hayati al-Dunya wal-Baqiyatu al-Salihatu khayrun inda rabbika thawaban wa khayrun amala. This is one of two places where the Quran says very this point in very similar ways of that let's see how this 24 on translates it 
Um, Worlds and children are the adornment of the life of this world. But that which endures righteous deeds are better in reward with thy Lord and better as a source of hope. So, that the zina, the, the pleasures of this life, it doesn't mean they're bad because a lot of Muslims come and say, well, you know, does this mean, is the Quran saying that money and, and, and children are bad? And obviously not. It's just saying that these are often what people base their values, their value systems on in this world. But whatever the merits, understand that a salihat, which could include an mal wal a salihat, money could become among the salihat, children could become among the salihat. It depends on what they are, on how they're utilized. So. If a child is pious and does good, then it's salihat. If money is spent in good place, in, in good venues, then it's salihat. And خَيْرٌ عِنْدَ رَبِّكَ ثَوَابًا وَخَيْرٌ أَمَلًا So, عِنْدَ رَبِّكَ with your Lord, they are the bearers of, of goodness, of good rewards, and they are the basis, the salihat are the basis for proper hopes and dreams. This is not just in the hereafter, but in the here now. And it is not a coincidence, again, that we, we after the story of the cave, after the discourse about the poor, after now we, we talk about the where the dawah is able to, in fact, inter engage in an inter in, into a discourse with competing views that to understand that ultimately, if there is hope for the future, it is that including zinat hayat dunya, whatever goodness the health produces has to become a salihat. This is different way of understanding this verse than normally what is said in traditional sources. In traditional sources, the way it is always explained is that the manual banun are here and the good deeds are here. Like they're two separate things. That's not what the Quran is saying. In fact, they could be one and the same. Just depends on what you do. Okay, the other thing that is worth pointing out, look at what it says, in the Rabbika, that, وَالْبَاقِيَاتُ الصَّالِحَاتُ خَيْرٌ عِنْدَ رَبِّكَ that the righteous deeds, or salihat righteousness, is what really matters with your Arab. In Islamic theology, it is worth noting that a 
Al-Rububiyya is always said to be Al-Rububiyya meaning divinity that when we refer to Allah as Rabbana or Al-Rububiyya is the basis for Ata' wa Tarbiya like the the Rabb a Rabb which is a word that goes back to Syriac and even Hebrew but Syriac before Hebrew Hebrew Aramaic sorry well also in Syriac it doesn't matter that it is the basis for the divine that gives and the divine that raises. And Uluhiyyah, Allah, is the basis for taklif, that it is the basis for divine-based obligations. And so, one of the things that Muslim theologians often, and especially in the Sufi tradition, they talk about is that a lot of people actually they are they have an inherent contradiction in their heart. And the inherent contradiction is that they have a problem with Uluhiyya, with Allah, but they don't have a problem with the Rabb. Meaning they have a problem with the, with the God that places obligations upon them. But they really don't have a problem with the God that gives them. So when they say, oh yeah, I love God, or God loves me, what they're really talking about is Rabbana, is the Rububiyya, that I don't have a problem with a God that is there to serve me and give me. But the God they don't want to believe in is the God that actually places restrictions on them. The uluhiyya, the, 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 the basis for taklif or the basis for obligations. This is an old philosophical point in Islamic philosophy that has been lost in modern Islam. And, and, be, and because in in Western, in English, we don't distinguish between Arab and Ilah, which in Aramaic and in Hebrew and in Arabic you distinguish between Arab and Ilah. So that that difference, which was lost in Latin, when Hebrew became the, the became Latin. I mean, when the when the, the 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 divine sacred books were translated from Hebrew to Greek to Latin, and then from Latin to English, that language often helps define the subtlety of human psychology. Um, Sometimes human psychology, when it doesn't have the ability to express itself in language, it, it really creates a crisis because people feel things that they can't ex express. And 
this is one of those things that I think deserve, while in the classical tradition, you find a lot that wrote about the, you know, elevating a rububiyah in your heart and elevating luhiyah in your heart and understanding why God is an ilah and a rabb, both. Um, when you find a lot of Muslims that are raised in the West and they repeat that same type of thing of, you know, their relationship with Allah is as if they expect Allah just to give them, but not demand anything of them or demand very little of them. Um, that's something to, worth noting. Although, as, as you notice, I mean, the, these things I'm, I'm just flagging because they, there's, there's so much. I mean, Surah Al-Kahf just is one of these surah that is an ocean. I mean, we could spend, I don't know, so much time just talking about all the different little details and specifics and um, amazing things in Surah Al-Kahf. Okay, and then from there we get this interlude in Surah Al-Kahf with Allah bringing back the discourse so from the seclusion stage to the stage of before, let's say, before the stage of complexity, of further complexity, into reminding you that it is ultimately all goes back to the very principle of accountability. And, and that this accountability is based on a meticulous record. This is in 49. <laughs> لا يغادر صغيرة ولا كبيرة إلا أحصاها ووجدوا ما عملوا حاضرة ولا يظلم ربك أحدا that meticulous record and the principle of justice injustice with Allah is an impossibility it takes us back to, the, to justice but before it gives us the story of Musa and Khidr, it reminds us of the basis for At-Taklif, Al-Ilahi, the basis for Allah entrusting us with the covenant itself. And that is the, the story of creation itself. And that the concession that Allah demands from angels and jinn that earth is going to be for human beings and human beings that role that human beings are going to play has to be honored, symbolized by the act of sujood. 
Here there is a very, and, and if you notice in verse 50, this is where the Quran says that Satan was a jinn. And there is, in modern Islam, if you read all the modern sources, they'll tell you it's very clear cut, it's very well settled. Satan was not an angel, Satan was a jinn. The reality is that this is a hotly debated issue in the Islamic tradition, for, and for the following reasons. That linguistically, a jinn can be a term that is, refers to any unseen being. So linguistically, the jinn are jinn and the angels are jinn. If you're just, if you're being like a, 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 um, a stickler for language, so technically, the ain't a form of jinn because they're unseen. Okay, so the theological debate in the Islamic tradition comes from the following is that Allah says, I told the angels to prostrate to Adam. I, Allah doesn't say, I told the angels and jinn to prostrate to Adam. And a lot of Muslim theologians said, the reason for this is that the angels were going to be placed at the service of human beings. Angels don't have free will. And or they are not supposed to have free will. And they will be placed at the service of human beings as long as Allah says so. And that the jinn, however, do have free will. And therefore, according to this school of thought, the jinn were not told to prostrate because they they're not supposed to be at the service of human beings. In fact, they're supposed to stay away from human beings. So from that perspective, they said that Satan was actually one of the high-ranking angels. And as a high-ranking angel, he did what angels were not supposed to do. And that is resort to something that angels are strictly forbidden from resorting to, and that is to exercise their own volition. And by doing so, he lost his status. And that's very similar to sort of the Christian uh, outlook, although not identical. Uh, and then the second outlook is that, no, jinn, the, the, Satan was a jinn but a jinn of an elevated status is that although he was a jinn, but he was allowed to exist in the heavenly realm of angels because of his elevated status. In other words, he had rose in the ranks or whatever the, the laws are, that, and that although Allah didn't say to Jinn to prostrate before Adam that 
by being, a, a, some even use the word mawla, that the jinn was mawla malaika, like the, the, the mawali system, like a protected, um, or like an affiliated member of uh, the angelic realm. That those affiliated members also prostrated because in fact they were expected to never compete with human beings and never defy human beings. It's, I, don't, I don't know, Allah Alam, and I don't really think it matters uh, to, to be, I mean, I, I, I believe in Satan as a physical corporal reality and it really doesn't matter whether he was an angel or that, you know, or not. Uh, he, he's he's very nasty, and his progeny is very nasty, and everything that belongs to the to the realm of Satan is very nasty. So what difference does it make? Um, so you know, although you you spend a lot of time reading all these debates and. You spend, I, you know, I, I, when I think of how many hours in my life I've, I've spent reading these arguments back and forth, um, you know, yeah, I'm happy I read it because, just for, to be educated, but ultimately I, 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 I've come to the conclusion like, well, it really doesn't make any difference. Um, you know, I'll find out if Allah wants me to find out when it's time to find out if Allah wants me to find out. And if Allah doesn't want me to find out, it's not something that, you know, I, I would love to gaze upon my Lord. That I care about. But I don't care to know if Satan was an angel or not an angel. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't see why people have a passion for that. I just don't get it. Allah. So after this reference, to this prostration narrative. There's what I, I take as an, an allusion to, to, again, you know, how dangerous it is to speculate upon things that we were not present. You know, ultimately, we were not a witness, none of us were a witness at, to the creation of the heavens and the earth. And our only source of knowledge is what Allah tells us. And if you are a believer, if you're a mu'min, that should be enough. You know, as Allah says, وَبْصُرْ بِهِ وَاسْمَعِ see with your the, the, your Lord's eyes and hear with your Lord's ears and that's enough. Um, okay. 54. The illusion before we're going to get to more the, the, the last two parables, the illusion that this Quran, the parables in this Quran, are there intentionally and for a purpose. وَلَقَدْ صَرَّفْنَا فِي هَذَا الْقُرْآنِ لِلنَّاسِ مِنْ كُلِّ مَثَلٍ وَكَانَ الْإِنسَانُ أَكْثَرَ شَيْءٍ جَدَلًا 
I think the, the, the meaning is, is evident, but it is one of those verses that every time the Quran refers to how argumentative human beings are, it, it deserves reflection. Um, the parables of the Quran are in part because of how argumentative human beings are. From there, there is this introduction to the story of Moses salam by reminding us that if it was purely, if Allah applied the skills of justice to life on this earth, this is in 58, if Allah applied the skills of justice to life on this earth, if in fact Allah's mercy and compassion was not, were not at play to our earthly life all the time, the amount of suffering that, human be that would be inflicted on human beings would be far greater than anything we have experienced that human beings trans transgress the bounds of justice all the time. And this is all deferred to the hereafter. But in the here now, although human beings deny it all the time, but it is Allah's mercy and justice that soften, softens the strict scales of accountability because human beings do horrible things all the time that would in fact lead to a million times the misery on earth and now why is this and the, the, the reminder that just remember that when cities and places are destroyed, they're often destroyed by their own injustice. So it is like Allah's mercy and Allah's grace period runs out. And then these, these nations, these people, uh, their civilizations crumble and, and fold and are vanquished. And, and, and keep this in mind as, as we get to the story of Dukarnayn, because this will become an important point to come back to. But why does it introduce the specific story to Moses and Khidr? And here we come to a very important juncture. وَإِذْ قَالَ مُوسَى لِفَتَاهُ لَا أَبْرَحُ حَتَّى أَبْلُغَ مَجْمَعًا بَحْرَيْنِ أَوْ أَمْضِ حُقْبَةً So this is 16. <clears throat> so Moses said to his servant, I will continue on till I reach a junction of the two seas, even if I journey for a long time. This is the study Quran. Okay, so 
really it is not possible to exaggerate the impact of this simple expression upon the Islamic tradition. In part, we the story of Moses and Khidr has a parallel in the biblical tradition, but it is very different than and so and this is part of the reason that I you know this this whole thing about the, the Jewish tribe saying well ask him about X Y and Z and because it, if the way the answer that the Quran gives it wouldn't have made Jewish tribes happy because it's very different than what you find in the Bible so that's one thing but anyway. Um, Majma' al-Bahrain, so at the juncture of the two seas. Now, Moses is a prophet. And as a, uh, there is, as a, a prophet, his knowledge comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through revelation. And Khidr, the man that he will encounter, there is a big debate in the Islamic tradition, and I'll come to it in a second, whether he is a prophet or not a prophet, but Khidr is not receiving revelation the way Moses is receiving revelation. He is receiving esoteric knowledge. In other words, he is a, a, a secret agent of the divine. He is not an expounder of external laws. He's not going out and saying, here is God's law. He's, he's acting upon Allah's will without saying, this is God's law. While Moses is an expounder of God's law, the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic law, and so on and so forth. There is a hadith, not very reliable, contrary to what? you'll often hear in, in popular Muslim circles, but none of these hadiths are reliable, that say that Moses stood once and gave, was giving a, a khutbah, and he said, no one is more wise than I am. And that God got mad at him and said, no, there is someone more wise than you, and that's Khidr. Go, go look for him at the juncture of the two seas. That's not reliable. There's another hadith that says that Moses asked God, God, is there anyone who is wiser than I am on earth? And Allah said, yes, there is a man called Khidr who is wiser than you. Uh, where do I find him so I can go learn from him, God? Well, at the juncture of the two seas. That hadith also is not very reliable. In the non-Islamic tradition, there are similar narratives about Moses wondering if there is anyone on earth that is wiser. But what does wiser mean? I mean, Khidr 
if he's acting upon divine orders, implementing divine orders, can we describe that as wiser? It's a different type of knowledge, but it's not wisdom. It's like, it's, okay. Is the knowledge that angels retain, is it wisdom? They carry out the divine orders. But we know that the angels prostrated to Adam. Why? Because Adam has analytical abilities. Although Muslims often forget this in the modern age. That Adam, the angel didn't prostrate before Adam because of his remarkable memory. Because if that was the case, then the angels would prostrate before computers. They have a much better memory than human beings. They prostrated before Adam because of Adam's intellectual, analytical abilities. Okay. So, why is this important? Well, in the, there is, in the Islamic tradition, and especially in the Sufi tradition, there is all this material about this expression, the two C's. And there's a lot about how, well, this is a parable for one C is the, the freshwater sea and the other sea is the saltwater sea and Majma al-Bahrain it is that juncture where esoteric knowledge meets uh, empirical knowledge ilm al-zahir and ilm al-batin Musa represents ilm al-zahir and, and Khud represents ilm al-batin well, ilm al-batin, where does this come from? It comes from a relation, special relationship with Allah. A special relationship with Allah that elevates to the point that you become wali min awliya'illah. And as a wali, you are receiving not revelation, but you are receiving direct knowledge from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but it is not a revelation that is good for all human beings, but it is a karama, it is a blessing. A, a, a Allah is giving you, as a wali min awliya'illah, a knowledge that is a gift to you and all that it applies to. So, the reason that this becomes so important in the Islamic tradition is the story of Moses as an al-Khidr. For Sufi Islam, it became the ideological battleground between the Sufis that said that Yes, there are prophets, of course there are prophets, and the prophets have revelation. But there are also awliyaullah. There are the, 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 the friends of Allah, the, the close allies of Allah, 
those who elevate in status that receive communication from Allah, but it's not revelation. Theologians, not surprisingly, like Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Qayyim, and so on, were extremely troubled by that. Why? Because if you are, if you claim to be Waliman Awliyaullah, then you can, and you see Khidr here, damaged a ship, killed a young guy, and built a wall. And say, so, well, basically then as a Wali, you can use your claim of divine inspiration to do all of the, all types of things that would violate the revealed law. So you can see their legitimate concern because anyone can abuse us. Anyone can say, well, I am Waliullah. I am an Ayatollah. Why? Because I am so close to Allah. Yes, the Prophet said X, Y, Z, but my inspiration says this and this. What's very interesting, though, is there was another side to this battle, and that were the philosophers. Ibn Taymiyyah, in his book, responding to Greek logicians, which Wa'al Khalaq translated to English, and if you know, it's worth reading, if um, because it's a very it's a very remarkable text. Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah says that uh, talks about all these Muslim, the, the Muslim schools of thought that said that Khidr was either himself Aristotle or some said that he was Aristotle's teacher and claimed that the type of knowledge that Khidr represented that was equal to revelation was philosophical knowledge. So on the one hand, you have the Sufi orientation that says esoteric knowledge that can be given to awaleem and awliyaullah. And you have the philosophical orientation, which Ibn Taymiyyah refutes in his response to Greek logicians, that says, um, um, that Khidr was really represented philosophical knowledge. In fact, Khidr was himself Aristotle or Aristotle's teacher or, or, or so on and so forth. And so what did traditional Muslims do? Often they tried to pinpoint who Al-Khidr was. And there you get so many reports about who Al-Khidr was. He was a descendant of Nuh salam, that his name was Bilya bin Malkan, among the many names that um, some even said that Musa that's referred to in Surah Al-Kahf is not Moses, uh, the, the famous Moses, 
but it's Musa bin Misha bin Yusuf um, bin Yaqub, who was a prophet before the famous Moses. And uh, by doing so, then he, then Khadr was, and the, the gist of this, although none of these are reliable, none of these are reliable. But the, the, the end result of this was to argue that Khadr was himself a prophet. So Khadr then is not a philosopher, is not a wali, he was himself a prophet. But he was a different type of prophet. That's what a lot of the traditionals claimed. What's interesting is a lot of traditionals and Sufis in my view, influenced by non-Islamic uh, sources, claimed that Khidr was a special type of either wali or prophet, one who basically went into, existed in the realm of the Barzakh. In other words, he, he continues to live to our day and will continue to live till the hereafter. He will die when the hereafter comes. And if you read in a lot of books, you get a lot of confusing, you know, I've gotten so many questions over the years about this. You know, people will go and, and read this book or that book and it tells them Al-Khidr is alive and, and Al-Khidr goes and keeps the Ajuj and Ma'juz at bay and he, you know, keeps the, 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 the fortification that protects us from the Ajuj and Ma'juz and all, all of this is mythology. All of this is, is, I mean, to put it quite simply, is nonsense. Notice that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Kahf doesn't tell us that this is Al-Khidr. Allah says, Musa and a man. And Allah doesn't even name this man. If Allah wanted us, if the naming of the man was so important, Allah would have named the man. All this material about al-Khidr comes from a hadith, which is ala aini rasi, okay. But if Allah, if it was really important that we know who this man is, Allah would have told us. But Allah didn't. And Majma al-Bahrain, esoteric knowledge and so on, there is a point to this, but it is highly exaggerated to either prove or disprove wilaya. The point here is that Musa salam, although a prophet, understood that there is someone that is more knowledgeable than him. However, he, come, he came to learn about this. But it's clear that, uh, that he knew that this man it, it, he can learn from. Now again, and it doesn't matter to me whether this is historical or not, because it could, the entire could, thing could be just a parable. So all those who have spent all this time trying to, you read so much stuff about where exactly the two seas are. They're here, they're there, all the speculation, it's all speculation, it, and it doesn't matter. 
Moses, the first rule is humility. And look at the, the, this entire encounter between Moses السلام, and this man who's going to teach Moses becomes it's extremely important about in 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 uh, expounding the ethics of a teacher-student relationship. It played a critical role in the development of the ethics of education in Islam. The humility of asking for permission, you accompany your teacher humbly. You ask only what you are allowed to ask about. And if you are told this is not something that you should ask about, you accept. Because, in, in other words, the relationship of mentorship, which is very different than the way educational institutions are, in, 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 you know, it's rare for anyone to be mentored these days. And, and, and you know, anyway, so one is the ethics of education. That, that's, but here there's another thing. And I think, I mean, what Musa والسلام, he tells his fata, who's usually in the Islamic sources, says it's Yusha bin Ibn Nun, that, uh, and of course, as, as, as you know that, the Prophet ﷺ forbade us from referring to slaves as slaves and referring to them and said you must, you, you can only refer to them as my feta, meaning, um, which is literally like my, my, it's like saying my son or my daughter, but you, you can't refer, it's, it's un-Islamic to say this is my, my slave or this is my servant, um, including this is my servant which, of course, modern Muslims in, in Muslim countries, they, they say khaddami or khaddamti or khadami, very un-Islamic. Anyway, uh, but Yusha Abin Nun was not, by, by, was not a slave, but was in turn a student of Musa wasalam. And this, as the story goes, is that they, they have a fish, and this fish is in a basket in the Islamic tradition, copied from non-Islamic sources, it, it, they insist that this fish was cooked and half-eaten. And that uh, this fish springs to life and jumps in the sea. And when it does, when Musa is, is exhausted and tells Yusha bin Nun, Okay, now we're hungry, bring our dinner, meaning the, the, what's left of the fish. Um, Yusha notices that the fish is gone, that it came back to life and jumped in the sea. Um, nothing in the text itself indicates that this fish was half cooked and, or was cooked and was half eaten. The, the fish could have been 
for all we know, I mean, it carried in a, in a bag that had water, living fish. And the, the, and the, the fish somehow would, you know, and that this was, Musa understood that the point where the fish escapes back to the water is the point that they will find this man, Al-Khidr, or who in Hadith sources it says is Al-Khidr. Okay, fine. And then Musa says, Al-Khidr, can I accompany you so that you will teach me of what Allah taught you? And Al-Khidr tells Musa, you're not going to be able to handle this knowledge. And Musa says, no, you know, you'll find me a good student. Just give me a chance. And Al-Khidr says, well, okay, but I have a condition. Don't ask questions. I will tell you what I need to tell you when it's time to tell you, but don't ask me questions in the meanwhile. And as, so the first incidence is that they get in a ship and as they are in the ship, the people, the owners of the ship allow them to ride for free, but Al-Khidr or this man goes to the lower floor of the ship and does something that will cause the ship to eventually sink. And of course this scandalizes Musa and says, what are you doing? They, they allow us to ride the ship for free and you damage the ship. And then they continue traveling and Al-Khidr finds a young man, he kills a young man, and Musa is scandalized and he says, how can you kill an innocent soul? And Al-Khidr says, you know, didn't I tell you not to ask me questions? This is now the second time Musa says, I'm sorry, uh, but this is very taxing. It, well, if I ask you any more questions, then you, you would have every right to kick me out, basically to expel me as a student. And then they go to this town and this town refuses and you it refuses to show any sign of hospitality. They refuse to feed them, they refuse to be kind to them. And this is a sign, although unfortunately the ethic of hospitality seems to have evaporated but in Islamic ethics, hospitality is critical for a good moral social order. Um, but yet, when, as they're leaving the town that was highly immoral by refusing to show them any signs of hospitality, they see a a, a wall that is about to crumble and Al-Khidr rebuilds the wall and as you probably know, then Khidr says to Musa okay, it's time for me to tell you uh, the answers about the questions you've asked, but this is the end of our relationship. And as you probably know that the, the ship, there was an unjust ruler who usurped every ship and I wanted to sink it so that 
it will, or I want to damage it, not sink it, but damage it, so that the ruler is not going to use it, it will not be attractive to the ruler. The ruler will not want it because it's damaged. And, and this way to preserve the ship to its rightful owners. And as to that, young man, he was go, a man that's going to torment his devout parents and Allah wanted to replace this child with another who is actually good to his parents and that's why I killed him. And the wall, it has a treasure to two orphans and if this wall would have crumbled, the treasure would have been exposed and the people, the inhabitants of this foul, uh, immoral town would have usurped the treasure of these orphans. But I wanted to preserve and protect the treasure so when the orphans grow up, they'll be able to find their, their treasure. Okay. Now, there is an interesting footnote to the story. And that's the killing of the boy. Sinking or damaging a ship doesn't bother any of us. Building a wall to protect the treasure doesn't bother any of us. But the interesting thing about the, the killing of this boy is that in modern Islamic sources, everyone talks, if you read, if you open up any modern Islamic source, they'll tell you, he found a child playing and he killed the child and because the child was going to grow up a bad human being. Well, pre-modern Muslims were bothered by this. <laughs> the irony is not modern Muslims, but pre-modern Muslims were bothered by this. And he said, well, how could, this doesn't seem right to kill a child who, you know, could grow up to be, he hasn't done anything wrong yet. And they went and they, 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 they go into these long, interesting discussions about various traditions and they, 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 the counter view is that he wasn't a child. You find it buried in books of tradition, but that he was a young man and that he was a highway robber. That he, he as a, that he was a highway robbers, you know that the, in the medieval world, the punishment for highway robbers was death. And so in fact, so in other words, he was a criminal who deserved to be killed. Um, and that he was the, the torment that he was going to bring his parents, according to these traditions, was that his parents were out of their love for their child. They were going, were, they were starting to cover for him. And they would have lost, they, they would have become by cut, because they love their child and by covering for their criminal child, they would have become uh, sinners who will not be saved. In other words, they would deserve Allah's punishment. And Allah to save them from that fate, send to kill this man so that they can have a new child who is not going to lead them to hellfire as this guy was going to lead them. I just thought it was always curious that at least, you know, the classical Muslims were engaged the Quran 
critically and ethically. They read the story and said, oh, we don't like the story about him being a child. Let's, let's do research. Modern Muslims, you know, I grew up always, I've learned that this was a child playing with other children. And only when I grew up and started reading all types of sources did I discover that, no, there is this, this whole entire counter-narrative. Um, okay. So, but again, let's go back. If, what is the, what is the jest or the purpose for this story in this place? Well, there is part that I do agree with the Sufi S tradition that Musa presented external laws. Yes, the law, positive law in its um, black and white, in its black letter form. But the only way that this man would be of greater wisdom than Musa is not for this man to be a historical figure that was going around as a secret agent of Allah, but of a symbolic point. And that is beyond the positive law, the black letter law. There is the morality of the law. There is the point of the law. So what it's like saying, and I believe that this is precise, this point was, was clearly understood by, by the, the early Muslims. That there is the type of knowledge that comes from the, the, um, the commands in the raw form. But there is the type of knowledge represented by Omar ibn Khattab in the way, in a lot of his fiqh, for instance, and by Imam Ali ibn Khattab in, in a lot of his fiqh, that the law, there are things that the law is unable to regulate but they are very much a part of life. The law will be unresponsive when there is an unjust ruler that is stealing and usurping ships. The law will often fail if parents are covering up for their criminal children because they love them. The law will often fail if people are so immoral that they will take advantages of the vagaries of time and the vagaries of fate to exploit orphans. So, 
the first stage is the stage we said of the idea in the cave. The second stage is the stage where the idea encounters the other and debates the other and interacts with the other. The third stage is the stage when you are established enough, like Musa where you bear the law, you have the law, you can actually apply the law, but the law will fail unless you combine that black letter law with understanding the social dynamics of the law represented in the persona of that man that Muslims were so obsessed with calling the khutr. And if we understand it this way, that resolves so much of the puzzlements and enigmas and confusions that and, and the, 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 the mysticism that surrounded the story. And there, where it comes to the Qarnayn, that uh, here we get to 83. Yeah, the study of Quran just reproduces it as Dukkarnayn. And then, of course, the footnote will explain. I'll, 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 I'm going to comment about that title, Dukkarnayn, in a second. There is an important point I forgot to make about the story of Musa, والسلام, and the man. Um, the story, notice the, the people in the cave, although in some of the traditions, the, although in some of the traditions say that they were the sons of rich families, again, that's not, that's, that's from the, from the biblical tradition. But the people in the cave, the fact that um, it is reasonable to, to suspect that they were from the disempowered elements in society. And we went through the discourse about us, associating yourself with the disempowered and the impoverished. One of the things that, one of the, the more um, um, notable things I've read about the story of the Prophet Musa and 
and the man is that this man who is not named all the hadith about him whether it's Khadr or, or is that he is a very humble human being but again the humble human being of no means is made the repository of the counter narrative to the authority and power of Moses who is a political leader and a warrior. Then we get, because this is important as we get to the story of Dhul-Qarnayn. Okay, so Dhul-Qarnayn, Dhul-Qarnayn, some said it's called Dhul-Qarnayn because uh, he, he has a helmet that has two horns. Some said he's called Zukarnain because he has two Zafar um, uh, uh, braided hair. The, huh? Braids? Yeah. Uh, the two two braids. In uh, there is so much in the tradition that debate who Zukarnain was. In modern Islam, the most famous one has become that he's Alexander the Great. But in the classical tradition, there is just so much. Some said that he's a Yemenite uh, um, political warrior, political leader type. Some said that he's within a Persian. Some said that he was a... Uh, man from Arabia, some said he's from Abyssinia, some said he's Alexander the Great. My view is, it is all of that is entirely immaterial. Why is it immaterial? Well, one, it's definitely not Alexander the Great because the Quran talks about a man who fears God, who is, is a monotheist, who is a believer in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Alexander the Great. I mean, Alexander the Great was, was not was no, uh, uh, you know, divinely inspired human being in any way. Um, that that's one. But the, the other thing is that the, if the Quran wanted us to know who this person was, it would have told us. And I think it's quite intentional that the Quran doesn't tell us who the Quran is. And in fact, I don't think it matters whether this is a historical figure or whether this is simply a parable. Pay attention to what the narrative says about the Quran. Is a man who is a political leader, and it starts out with yes, They ask you, so it's it's a it's a mythology that is known to the Arabs at the time. They are asking you about the Karnain. Okay, well, I will tell you 
something about Zulqarnayn. But then when it tells them about Zulqarnayn, the Quranic narrative is far more reserved and purposeful and as we will see moralistic than any of the mythology that has reached us pre-islamic mythology about a figure known as Dukkarnayn. In all the pre-islamic mythology Dukkarnayn what is referred to as Dukkarnayn was sometimes as I said a Yemeni fellow sometimes an Abyssinian fellow, sometimes a Persian hero, sometimes a, 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 depending on who, what you're reading, is this guy who basically is, has magical encounters wherever he goes. But the Quranic narrative is very different. So, this is 84 and 85. This is a man who we've given him power on earth. We've given him the know-how. What are we talking about here? We're talking about technological advancement, knowledge. So he is following causal rational relations. It is not as the Arab mythology of the Quran, it's full of magic. You know, he is uh, turning uh, 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 lead into gold, he's doing all types of, he's flying everywhere. No, in, in the Quran it comes and says, no, it is all rational causation. It's all technology. So, he is marching, and the Quranic narrative just starts by telling us that he is marching, and he is marching till he gets to a point where the sun seems to be sinking in the ocean, which is a figure of speech. Don't believe any of the mythology about, uh, because, uh, about uh, some mysterious hidden land of jinn and stuff like that. Anyway, that he comes to a people that are primitive. But these people are not just primitive. They are So they are seems to be primitive and they are both just and unjust. 
So it is a society that the Qur'an can, can contribute something to. And the discretion that is given to him is whether to deal with this entire mass of people, with this entire nation, by the prevailing order, or to deal with them with the far more difficult proposition, and meaning to apply not simple uh, formal justice, but equitable justice. And is to apply ihsan to them. And though Qarnayn chooses to apply ihsan, meaning that I will take the time and the effort to inquire as to whether they are whoever does right, I will reward them, and whoever does wrong, I will punish them. So the first lesson about the Qarnayn, the first lesson about the Qarnayn, is that with all that power is is a lesson of applied justice then then he goes on so he finds a primitive people that are so primitive that they are as the quran says بلغ مطلع الشمس وجد حتى إذا بلغ مطلع الشمس وجد وجدها تطلع على قوم لم نجعل لهم من دونها من دونها سترة. That these people are so primitive that they have no protection or no cover from the sun. They are they they're not wearing clothes. They're walking around either scantily clothed or naked. They live in caves. They're very primitive. And it doesn't tell us anything other than he went on. This deserves a pause. He found a people that are so backwards. There were people that were backwards, but he engaged and he applied the law. But these people were so backwards that he just went on. I think the implication is clear. Sometimes when people are so, there isn't even the elements of engagement in the processes of justice then you leave them undisturbed in their backwardness. Sometimes the moral thing to do is to say, well, you know, I will just have to move on. 
Then he moves on and he comes to a people again who are not just backwards, but isolated to the point that they speak a language that is un, other, other people don't understand. And that they don't understand the Quran. And he communicates with them through a translator. All the, the, the sources say that he finds a translator that is able to talk to those people. And they complain about an enemy that they refer to as Ya'juj wa Ma'juj. And they say Ya'juj and Ma'juj are cause a lot of corruption. They're, they're, they're very bad people. They keep raiding us and hurting us. And Dhukarnain could have said, well, it's not my problem and moved on. But Dhukarnain sees here not a, a primitive people that have a culture that is so backwards or so primitive that there is very little you can do in terms of applying rules because sometimes it, 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 that will be counterproductive. But in fact, with these people, he makes it his business and they offer, they say, you know, we'll pay you money if you help us. And he says, no, I, I don't want your money. I'm going to help you, but only if you help yourself. But he does something that so many sources ignore how huge what he does is. He teaches them because it is it is impossible to he, he says you have to help me build a for a dam or a fortification a wall that's going to protect you from Ya'juj and Ma'juj. And in order to build that, I will need to use iron. And you know what? Iron, you need advanced technology to extract iron. You, you just, iron is not there in nature where you just go and you get, oh, let's use iron. You have to extract iron you have to purify it from the elements. You have to then process that, process the iron so it can be used for construction. And he doesn't just use iron, but he uses a very particular form of fortification, and that's eradm. Eradm is iron plus um, uh, uh, um, plus. Um, uh, uh, cement and sand to construct a solid fortification. Well, you cannot do that unless you are transferring technology to those people who are helping you build it. Because you've got to extract the iron well, you've got to find the iron first, and you've got to extract the iron, you've got to purify the iron, you've got to process the iron, and then you've got to process all the other elements, and then you've got to get... So we're talking about a very prolonged process 
where Dukarnain helps protect these people for no return. Now, of course, it, here we get to the point, the issue of Ya'juj and Ma'juj. In the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament refer to Gog and Magog or whatever it as in this whole allusion to the end of days and the 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 Antichrist and the and the when the Antichrist is killed there will be the the invasions by Gog and Magog and then Jesus will fight them and God will slay Gog and Muslims borrowed a lot of this biblical discourse and injected it into Islam. Ya'juj and Ma'juj are two words, although they sound similar to what exists in the Latin Bible, which is, by the way, a corruption of the original Aramaic in the case of the, of, of, of the New Testament. And also corruption of the Hebrew, to be honest, both. But anyway, um, Ya'juj is from Ajja, and Ma'juj is from Majja, or Ajjaja, and Majja. And Ajjaja are the rabble rousers. Majja are destructive forces. So if I say, means that I have raised hell on earth. Or I destroyed the heck out of it. Yet Juj and Majuz is a reference to an enemy, a destructive enemy. And we'll come to the, I'll, I'll, I'll come to this, but let me finish the, I'll return to this, but let me finish the story of Ya'jujin, of uh, Zulqarnayn. So what is the, what, what are we getting from Zulqarnayn? Zulqarnayn has technology, has power. With this power, he applies the law to certain people, applies justice. He leaves other people undisturbed. He helps a people fend off aggression. Zulqarnayn is a parable for the just, for the just use of power. So then lay it all out in Surah Al-Kahf. Lay it all out. First, we started out with the people who seclude themselves in the cave. Then we go to the people who are engaging others in debate and conversation about justice about what's right and wrong. Then we go to the people who have principles and morals and refuse to disassociate themselves from the poor. Then we go to the people who understand that law is not just a bunch of black letter law, but there is a spirit and morality behind the law. Then we go to the ultimate, and that is, now you have technology, now you have power, now you spread justice on earth. Imagine this discourse for the early Muslims. 
is like telling them, you know, you went from the stage where you were hiding in Dar al-Arqam, hiding in the cave, in Dar al-Arqam, in secret. Now you're persecuted. You can't engage them in discourse and debate. But it's Allah's time. It's not your business to, to whether, you know, when Allah is going to give you victory or not victory. But remember, it's all about principles. Not even, not even in the state of extreme suffering and persecution allows you to cut corners and say, well, let's distance ourselves from the poor. Well, let's, let's make, let's compromise with this. Let's go. If that, then it's over. And remember that if Allah allows you to establish a polity, it's not about just applying the formalities of the law. You have to achieve substantive justice. And if Allah allows you to be an actual imperial power, it is about the good you do on earth. So then we come to Ma'juz, but then you say, but wait, in Surah Al-Anbiya, didn't, didn't say that when the time comes, the time for the hereafter comes, Allah will, that the, that doesn't first, doesn't it say in Surah Al-Kaf that when the time for the hereafter comes, the dam or that fortification will, will be destroyed? Yeah, it says that. But so will everything else be destroyed. When the time for the hereafter comes, yes. Even what the Qarnayn built has, will crumble. But then you say, but doesn't it say that Surah Al-Anbiya, that Ya'juj and Ma'juj will be unleashed upon the earth when it's the time for the hereafter? Yes. But Ya'juj and Ma'juj is an idiomatic expression for forces of chaos. It is not a hidden... Muslims for centuries sat there and saying, oh, Ya'juj and Ma'juj are the Mongols. Oh, Ya'juj and Ma'juj are the Crusaders. Oh, Ya'juj and Ma'juj are the, 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 the Israelis. Oh, Ya'juj and Ma'juj are the Russians. Oh, Ya'juj and Ma'juj are this. And they refer to, to hadith. None of these hadith are authentic. None of them. Yet Juj and Majuj could be aliens from outer space. Personally, that's what I believe. I believe when the time for the hereafter comes close, Earth will be invaded by aliens. There will be spaceships from outer space. I mean, you, you, you're free. You want to believe that? You're fine. You don't want to believe it? Don't believe it. I mean, but it is forces of chaos. It's an idiomatic expression. There will be chaos that will overtake this earth. A complete breakdown. It doesn't mean that there's a hidden tribe behind some wall somewhere under the ground or as you know, all the mythology and the nonsense that you read hiding to emerge or that it's the Chinese. That's racist. 
Those Muslims who say, oh yeah, Jews and Majus are the Chinese and they will be unleashed upon us. That's racist, people. How can you say that? Yeah, the, 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 yeah, the Chinese parent, Chinese government is committing a, 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 a holocaust against Muslims and they're being the Jews and Majus in doing that, but they're also the Chinese of Taiwan. They're the Chinese who are American citizens. They're the Chinese who are... You can't say stuff like that. Juj and Majuj is an idiomatic expression for Ezja and Majja. So, and look, وترك, this is 99. The word, the origin of Majuz is used here in the Quran. That when the time of the hereafter, the hereafter is near, there will be this chaos. This by the way, the word mauj for waves in Arabic, it's derived from the same thing, mauj. The reason it's called mauj is because it's a force. And it's a force that often causes chaos. Okay. Then we come, after Surah Al-Kaf takes us through these amazing parables and communicates to us all these lessons it comes back and says those at the end who will confront the horrible fate are those who were الَّذِينَ كَانَتْ أَعْيُنُهُمْ فِي ذِطَاءٍ عَنْ ذِكْرِي وَكَانُوا لَا يَسْتَطِيعُونَ سَمْعًا When all is said, all is said and done, it is about ذِكْرِ Allah must be center, front and center, before your eyes and in your ears. Because ultimately, the, the, the foundation for our system of thought is you have no awliya other than Allah. You have no true sources of empowerment or authoritative reference. Your morality your ethics, your system of ethics, not the, 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 the principles themselves, but the system of ethics must center itself on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because if not, then you will become like those that those who think that they're, they're actually achieving something on earth. But ultimately, it leads to nowhere. 
And then, for the second time in the Quran, or the, the, the only other place in the Quran, Allah reminds you with something that it's, it's like an invitation to say, reflect upon Surah Al-Kahf very carefully. قُلْ لَوْ كَانَ الْبَحْرُ مِدَادًا لِكَلِمَاتِ رَبِّي لَنَفِذَ الْبَحْرُ قَبْلَ أَنْ فَنْفَذَ كَلِمَاتُ رَبِّي وَلَوْ جِئْنَا بِمِثْلِهِ دَا مَدَدًا Allah's wisdom, it's not the words of your Lord. It's, it's if, if, if the oceans were ink to the wisdom of your Lord. Kalimatu Rabbi means the wisdom of your Lord. It would be, in fact, the wisdom of your Lord is boundless and endless. More than all the oceans, many put together, many fall. And ultimately, as if for the millionth time the Quran emphasizes that this prophet is not there for your prestige, is not there for tribalism, is not there so you can wave a flag, is not there. this prophet is but a human being. And the only thing that will avail you and help you is al-amal al-salih. فَمَنْ كَانَ يَرْجُوا لِقَاءَ رَبِّهِ فَلْيَعْمَلْ عَمَلًا صَالِحًا is good deeds, righteousness. And وَلَا يُشْرِكُوا بِعْبَادَةِ رَبِّهِ أَحْبًا And Understand that Ibadatul Bashar, enslavement to other human beings or subordination to other human beings, Ya'khuzu Sayyid Khayrul Abd, the superior takes from the subordinate. But Ubudiyatillah Yahuzufihil Abd Khayru Sayyidi. When it comes to Ubudiyatillah subordination to Allah, it is the subordinate who takes goodness from the superior. It is understanding this. Understanding this, when people come say, "Well, in Islam, you know, you're a slave to to God," it is as a, as a, as a subordinate to God. I take from the superior. The superior doesn't take anything from me. But Surah Al-Kaf is like a new stage in the Islamic mission. Mission. It is revealed, it is like um, constructing the Islamic consciousness to understand the principles and basics of virtue 
Now, of course, Islamic history didn't live up to that ideal, but that's a whole challenge. You know, Muslims as conquerors and empire buildings, builders were not always like Dhul Qarnayn. In relative to the Byzantines and relative to the superpowers that existed in their time, they were better. But if we take what the, that select group, the group that was raised by the Prophet understood, I'm not talking about the mass conversions that take place later, because that is often confused and there is no question that they were permeated with precisely the morality that the Quran constructed in them. And I have a feeling I forgot a couple of things, but I'm in too much pain to remember now. But that's Surah Al-Kahf. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. This was absolutely stunning. Um, I think now, I mean, I know I understand why all the pain. I mean, this, there's so much to process. And I um, mean, so first let me just say what, so we're going to do is we're going to um, reserve Q&A until Tuesday and inshallah so that the Sheikh can rest and also give us a chance to process. And I'm sure that between now and then also that he'll have a chance to kind of think about all the things that he might have wanted to say today but didn't remember. Um, because honestly, the, the pain prevented him from um, properly preparing as he usually does. Normally, as you know, we've said, he stays up all night um, reviewing um, you know, a lot of different kinds of things to, to have full command. And this time he did this literally off pretty much, I think, from his, his head because every time he tried to prepare, he was so gripped with pain that he really couldn't. And normally this is not the, 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 the place. Of course, we couldn't tell, but um, you know, from where he wanted to be, um, he was not able to achieve that just because of the, the level of pain. But I think that you know, this, um, you know, just as a reaction, one, understanding now, you know, if you, I wish you guys could have been with us to, through these struggles, but I understand now because I think this is such profound knowledge that clearly is completely unknown to our tradition. And when you put it together like this, it just provides such incredible clarity. Um, and I think that this for me really, you know, like I always say, there's always comes a point during a halakha where it just overwhelms me viscerally. Like, I can't believe that, okay, this, you just feel the, the, the divinity and the specialness of what you're saying. But when you even, you know, when you get to the last parable and the story of this man and the idea of, you know, at that time having technology and power and the ability to, you know, apply something that we don't even have today the idea of you know elevated justice that is nuanced and dependent upon a per, you know a particular situation having the ability to discern between people who are so backwards you don't even want to engage to the people who can learn from you and you know and 
this is something that is, is like beyond what we have today. Yeah. And when you think about this is the message that was given to these people 1400 years ago, then you start imagining that these are human beings that were just as complex, just as, you know, requiring nuance and care and love and justice and mercy and everything else that it requires to build a society, you know, and and, and where are we today? You know, I mean, I, I just like I, it's really hard to articulate just the gift, this incredible gift that you've given us in understanding our own book. I mean, it elevates, I think, my my level of, you know, awe and, you know, I mean, to say, oh, respect or, or is, is really just, it, it's not, you know, I, I don't feel like I have a right to say that, but it's to give us a glimmer of just how incredibly divine and magical and powerful this is this this book is and and, and what we've done with it as Muslims today is, is truly shameful so I, I mean it's subhanallah anyway I, I feel like this small group here is extremely um, blessed but also burdened because this obviously is knowledge that you know if we are this group I mean it made me wonder do we need to go like move into the caves, you know, and just preserve it? Um, yeah. Or do we have a responsibility, you know, to do more than that? And I guess that's the challenge. But we who come together regularly and appreciate this, because there are people who come and go and, are, you know, can't keep up because life is busy. But, you know, we who had the gift to come here and take time out of our lives to really focus, I think the, the burden of responsibility is immense. And, you know, now God is going to ask us, I gave this to you, like I gave it to those early Muslims with the Prophet. What did you do with it? Did you leave it? Or, you know, so I mean, I, I would always say, I, I, alhamdulillah, that I was not one of the early Muslims because I don't think I could have handled that. But now I feel like, oh God, and maybe our job is to preserve it. I don't know. We'll figure it out, inshallah. But in, in all cases, the knowledge is absolutely stunning. I would rather know than not know. And I think that it just raises your level of appreciation to new heights that I, you know, I think people probably never thought was possible. So thank you. And may Allah bless you for all of the pain and all of the suffering and all of the fighting you had to do to arrive today and give us this knowledge, alhamdulillah. And inshallah, to be continued on Tuesday. Um, process those questions, and uh, we will look forward to, to being with you then. <laughs>